0: Thank you for tuning in today and welcome back to another episode of The Source. I'm your host San Raza. In this episode, I'll be talking to Raymond McGovern, a former CIA officer who served the agency from 1963 to 1990 as an analyst. In the 1980s, he chaired the National Intelligence Estimates and also prepared the President's Daily Brief. In 1990, at his retirement, he received the CIA's Intelligence Commendation Medal. He's now a political commentator and activist. This is a two-part discussion In this part, I'll be focusing on Ray's biography and experience at the CIA and also having a fundamental discussion about the war in Ukraine. In the next segment, I will be focusing on the recent developments surrounding the war in Ukraine. Be sure to subscribe to our channel if you don't want to miss part two. Ray, thank you so much for your time today.
1: You're most welcome, Raza.
0: Let us begin this interview with your biography. The CIA is known by many watching on channel as an agency that is responsible for assassinations, coup d'etat, sabotage, and more. You joined this agency in 1963 and stayed there for 27 years. Talk about your motivations for joining this agency as well as your personal experience there.
1: Well, Zine, I, uh, I joined the agency because it was a newly created agency. Um, I had uh, majored in Russian. Uh, undergraduate and had a master's degree in Russian studies and there was a it was a coincidence that uh, the Russian problem became the biggest of all back in the late, late 50s and early 60s. So after my military service uh, I joined the CIA as an analyst. Now uh, we analysts were kept hermetically sealed from the operations people. <laughs> I mean, the the operation, when Truman created the CIA, he had in mind one place to go for an honest answer on foreign policy issues. He didn't want to put his intelligence people under the Pentagon for obvious reasons, Uh, the Russians, the Soviets were always 10 feet tall. He knew that they weren't quite that tall. He didn't want to put us on the State Department, which was always uh, defending its particular policies. He wanted what he called untreated intelligence, intelligence without bias. One place where he could go for and say, look, you tell me what you really think. You work for me. I give you career protection. Tell me what's going on. <laughs> you know, I, that really attracted me, right? It was true. As far as those of us working on the Soviet Union, it was true until Bill Casey and Bobby Gates came in in the 80s and then it became not true. Uh, the uh, even the analysts were were tarnished. There was no untreated intelligence. It became treated intelligence, if you will, uh, treated by Casey and Gates, who thought uh, and told President Reagan. Gorbachev is just a clever commie, he's cleverer than the others, but no commies will give up power in the Communist Party, the Soviet Union, forget about it, so don't be taken in. <laughs> Anyhow, it went downhill from then. But my point simply is that when the CIA was being set up, when when Truman had legislation incorporating this idea of one unvarnished, one one way to get untreated intelligence, uh, the, the OSS, the, op, the Office of Strategic Services guys, the spies. Now, now there's, no, there's no gainsaying. the fact, these were very courageous, talented, enterprising, and imaginative people, right? They jumped behind enemy lines, and they did all kinds of mischief during World War II, and they came back to Washington, and they said, thanks a lot for the applause. And again, the applause was well-deserved. Now, uh, should we hang around or should we go back to our law firms uh, our corporations uh, or, you know, academe? And uh, Russia was taking over Eastern Europe. And the the question answered itself no, 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 stay around for God's sake. We need you. The Russians are overthrowing governments. We need to be able to do that. The Russians are assassinating people. We need to be able to do that. We got (laughs) to. So. Long story short, somebody, and it mostly, I think most people believe it was George Kennan, of all people, said, no, we need these guys. Let's put them. Yeah, we're creating this analysis group, but it's got to be secret because we're going to be collecting information from spies. So since it's, let's put the operations people, the covert action people right, right, in, right in with the analysts. I'll be just one happy family a structural fall from the beginning. Now, people realized that in the beginning because there were, get this now, you know the kind of turnstiles you used to have in the subways? There were turnstiles on each floor of the seven-story CIA new building in Langley, Virginia, separating analysts from the operations people. We didn't know anything more about what the operations were than people reading the New York Times, mostly. There was one exception to that, and I have to mention this, because Bill Colby, for whom I worked directly, gave us, uh, often gave us a little look at what covert action was planned. Okay? So, for example, we said, you know, the president wants us to blow up the North Stream pipeline, uh, and we find out the operations guy said, we can do it, what do you guys think? <laughs> Hello, are you serious, Mr. Colby? Yeah, well, this is crazy. Okay, write me a memo. I'll send it down to Kissinger at the time. That's what we did, and we spiked many a cockamamie covert operation. So anyhow, that was the one exception out of nine CIA directors under whom I served. One exception where the analysts were given by Colby, who was a pretty renaissance man, if you believe it, um, It gave us a chance to say, to to fortify his position and say, don't don't even think about that, Henry, and don't tell Richard that either. So uh, that's how you explain these kinds of things, these blowing up things, these assassination things, um, these unfortunate operations that, uh, that people think they can do with impunity. Why? Because, and I'll finish up this thing with this, pointing out this that when the national security act of 1947 was signed off they it included a one one uh, sentence that said and i quote the director of central intelligence shall perform such other functions and duties as the president shall from time to time direct okay now that's a <laughs> That gives an operative kind of some protection. Based on what I was just doing what the doctor tell me. It doesn't make it legal. It doesn't make it moral. It doesn't make it sensible. But it's sort of allowed by the legislation. That's a very noxious clause. It's been used to just to justify, in quotes, all manner of well, stupid and worse things.
0: In 2006, you returned the CIA's Intelligence Accommodation Medal, which you received in 1990. What prompted you to make this decision? In in that year,
1: uh, the head of the CIA, his name was Porter Goss, was uh, asked by Dick Cheney, who was, uh, you know, the sponsor of a lot of these extreme measures, so to speak, enhanced interrogation techniques, right out of the Gestapo Handbuch, I might add. Oh my God. So Cheney was very much in favor of this. And when John McCain, who had been tortured by the Vietnamese, when he was going to pass legislation prohibiting not only the military, but the CIA from torturing people, Cheney was not going to allow that. So he asked Porter Goss, head of the CIA, come down with him and lobby against Cheney doing this, uh, lobby against McCain doing this, banging on his door saying, no, you have to make an exception to us. We have to. And I thought, well, you know, that's I mean, I kind of knew that the CIA was sponsoring liaison services, so to speak, that did all manner of of trouble in places like Central America, torture, I mean, but I, you know, this was too much for me. The agency to whom I gave 27 years was now openly identified as pleading with legislators in our government for permission to continue torture. That was too much. Um, I'll tell you one other thing that I was thinking back on this today. Uh, I moved in circles, uh, including Gutsy, courageous courageous nuns and priests who worked in Salvador, Honduras, Guatemala. One of them was Sister Diana Ortiz, who was tortured by Liaison operatives in a most uh, in a in a horrid way. I had met her, I had talked to her shortly before deciding to do this. And that fortified my resolution to do something driven by my conscience and not just acquiesce and oh, all these things happen, uh, expose it to the degree I could and expose the people who sponsored it, namely Porter Goss and Donald Rumsfeld and uh, Alberto Gonzalez and all these creeps uh, that that really, uh, well, I won't say any more about what adjectives I could, I could use. But it was so distasteful. I mean, uh, I had one proud moment, and that was, I think, that was July sixth, two thousand and six. Um, I was an Army intelligence officer before I joined the CIA, and the head of Army intelligence got up. His name was John Kimmins. He got at the, up at the Pentagon on the very same day that George W. Bush, president at the time, advertised what he called an alternative set of procedures, uh, which later became known as enhanced interrogation techniques, which also known as torture. okay, On that same day, Kimmons got up at the Pentagon and he said, I have to tell you, that no good information has ever come from torture techniques. Uh, History shows that to be the case. And the experience of the last five years, mind you, this is 2006. The experience of the last five years also demonstrates that, period, end quote. So the army knew, the military knew and everybody fell fell in line behind Cheney and Porter Goss and the likes of George W. Bush and did these alternative techniques, enhanced interrogation techniques. We all know what they were. You know, people say, well, don't they work? No, but you know, I mean, there are so many reasons against it. One, one would be your own people are gonna to be tortured if you torture others. Another is that you you squander opportunities. I mean, when there was island hopping in the Pacific by the Marines in World War II, okay, there's one true story where they were cleaning up, and out comes this Japanese soldier with his rifle out of a cave. And a platoon leader and a sergeant see him. And the platoon leader says, you want me to plug him? And the said, Well, no, he's got his hands up. Let him come out. Now, if the Marines had a reputation of plugging everybody like that, that guy would have come out firing, right? He turned out to be the code clerk for the head of the Japanese fleet, for God's sake. They took him to Washington right away. And, uh, you know, this really helped them break the Japanese code. So that's another reason you squander opportunities if you, you have a reputation of killing everybody as soon as you see them. Uh, another reason is it's really not a respectable thing to do internationally. At least that's the way it used to be when I grew up. Uh, I mean, it, the big thing is that it doesn't work. It's illegal, right? But it's it it's not bad because it's illegal it's illegal because it's bad <laughs> I mean, human beings don't do that to each other you know i had a i had a uh, really interesting experience for me we all need to grow up on these things i was out in berkeley california and uh, I gave a little speech on on torture and the heinous things that were going on, and I made allusion to the fact that I'm a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, okay? And he was tortured to death, so I had kind of a special interest in these things, all right? And so the Jewish fellow with whom I was staying way up in the Berkeley Hills uh, took me aside and said, now, Ray, um, thanks very much. I mean, it's very nice that you, Jesus was tortured. But you know, <laughs> You don't have to be a follower of Jesus Christ to to realize that torture is always wrong for God's sake. People don't do that to one another. So I said, oh, that's right. (laughs) So that used to be the case. It was so heinous. That's kind of a long-winded explanation of why it did it. Um, And the last, the bottom line, of course, is that it doesn't work. Uh, And we know it, the, the Kimmons said it didn't work, right? General Kimmons. But when, when the Senate Intelligence Committee, to its credit, required the CIA to fork over its internal documents about torture and how it worked or didn't work, the upshot was that the CIA had lied through its teeth. It never worked. They claimed it worked, but it never worked. Now, Diane Feinstein, to her credit, I don't really like her very much, but to her credit, she stood up to those investigators that she would, had working for her. And just before Congre- the, the Senate changed hands, she forced that thing out into the open against the strong opposition of President Obama, her Democratic Party president. So she did that. And uh, that sort of revealed chapter and verse, and it also revealed or she revealed that in the process of doing this investigation, her investigators had their computers hacked by John Brennan's plumbers, John Brennan's hackers. Okay, I mean, hello, uh, uh, legislative branch overseeing the uh, executive branch. CIA not supposed to do that. You know, I mean, they're not supposed to do that to the to the uh, Congress. So it was fraught with all kinds of, of awful stuff in the event uh, only the summary of this intelligence report was published, uh, but <laughs> put in that summary to show exactly what was going on. And when the Senate changed hands, the new Senator head of the Senate Intelligence Committee said, I recall all copies of that study. I own that study. It was my committee that did it. I'm gonna put them in my safe, and there they rest, the full investigative report. Uh, since that time, okay, that's 2015, 2016. So uh, you know, <laughs> enough about torture, I guess. But but that's where I come come from on that and. Uh, I must say that I was disappointed that not too many of my colleagues, my former colleagues, analysts even, thought that uh, torture was beyond the pale, so to speak.
0: Let us move to a fundamental argument uh, regarding the war in Ukraine. Um, Russia justified its war based on demilitarization and denazification. One of the main arguments surrounding demilitarization was that NATO, has encircled Russia directly threatening Russia's security despite Western assurances that it would not do so. Is there any legitimacy to uh, to these arguments?
1: Uh, Only about 98% legitimacy, I would say. (laughs) Of course, if you've been around a while and you've read things other than what appears in the New York Times or the Washington Post, you know that, uh, well, In February 1990, after the Berlin Wall fell, after it was clear the Soviet Union was falling apart, um, George H.W. Bush, for whom I worked when he was Director of Central Intelligence and whom I later briefed for four years during the first Reagan term, when he was Vice President, he said, "Look, Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, we sympathize with your problems. I'm not going to dance on what's left of the Berlin Wall." Wow! I said to myself, "You know, that was a good guy to have served." I had just retired, hit myself in the back and said, "Well, Soviet Union's going to fall apart. Mission accomplished." <laughs> there were a few other people involved, of course, but I said, "Good job, McGovern." <laughs> okay, it didn't happen. Why? Because uh, Bush sent his lawyer, fancy lawyer from Texas, Jim Baker. Baker, you know, I have this directly from Chat McClock, who is ambassador, who was there. Right, I don't have to make it up or read it in a document. He says, so "Look, we want a reunited Germany." <laughs> no, uh, Zane, I have to tell you that I, I, I was alive during World War Two. Maybe I saw too many World War II movies or something, but even as a CIA analyst, I didn't want to be United Germany. It scared me scared me to death, okay, sort of like this. Now can, you can imagine how Gorbachev and andsvar Nazi, the, the foreign minister felt. I mean, there's a country that lost 26 plus million people. At the hands of a united Germany, right? We Americans lost about four hundred forty thousand, all military people. That, that's a lot, but it, you know, compare. Do the math. Twenty-six million is a lot more. So <laughs> he's asking Gorbachev to and Shafirnada, "We want a reunited Germany." So they say, "Well, hello, what's the what's the quo?" I mean, that's a big, untasteful, hard to swallow quid. And, and Jimmy Baker says, and this I have from Matlock, well, how would it be, yeah, how would it be if we promised or not to move NATO one inch toward the east, toward the, toward the Soviet Union? Well, long story short, they were in bad shape, the Soviet economy especially. They expected a lot of help from the West. They said, okay, promise? And uh, Jimmy Baker says, uh, oh, yeah, well, I promise. Now. Baker was a lawyer, right? A slick lawyer from Texas. I mean, every lawyer says, we got to write that down, right? <laughs> I mean, unless, unless you have an ulterior motive as to why you don't want to write it. My, my father was a lawyer. He said, right, get it in writing, for God's sake. Get it in writing, okay? So anyhow, I had a chance to talk to one of Gadava closest AIDS uh, in those days, his name was uh, Kuvaldin Viktor Borisovich. Uh, Kuvaldin looks at me. And I say, Mr. Kuvaldin, why was that agreement not written down? And he says, well, Mr. McGovern, I'll give you the two staple reasons. One is the Germans hadn't given full buy in yet. And of course, it had to do with Germany. Uh, another one is this Warsaw Pact was still existing, uh, but the real reason, Mr. McGovern, is he looked me right in the eye. He said, "He said we trusted you." So that's where it started, uh, 1990, February. I think was February 10th. Okay. So then you get you get down to uh, let's let's take the next benchmark. That would be that be 2008. After NATO had doubled in size, all new countries, quite more than one one inch east of East Germany, uh, so 2008, it becomes known that NATO is considering incorporating Ukraine and Georgia uh, in NATO as members. And uh, again, you know, I was worried about this, and people spoke out against it, but. Uh, uh, Bush and Condoleezza and, uh, and, uh, Rice, who was Secretary of State, and of course, Cheney, they wanted that to happen the last year before going, riding off into the sunset. So what happened was uh, uh, the newly appointed foreign minister, uh, Sergei um, Lavrov, called our ambassador in. Now, our ambassador at the time was a fellow named william burns he happens to be head of the cia now okay now long story short he says mr burns do you know what net means and burns says well (laughs) net means net okay no incorporation of ukraine and georgia in nato okay that is a red line for us now to his credit then and sent back a cable, and we have the cable thanks to WikiLeaks, and it's authentic. If I've seen one Embassy Moscow cable, I've seen about 5,000 in my career. Uh, he says, in the title, net means net, red line, no membership for Ukraine and Georgia and NATO, okay? And then he says, he explains what happened to him, and he says, you know, um, the Russians are really worried about their near frontier, and... Actually, they have strategic reasons to be – everybody's entitled to be worried about Well, that was a gutsy thing for an ambassador, though, because Cheney didn't want to hear anything about legitimate interests or legitimate worries, so he sent that back. That was then. That was 2008, okay? What is Bill Burns saying now as head of the CIA? This unprovoked – you hear me? Unprovoked invasion of Ukraine. Well, nobody knows better than Bill Burns that this was provoked. Okay, uh, for the reasons I just mentioned. So, Bill Burns has become a, a propagandist when we have a dire need for an intelligence officer who will tell it straight. Intelligence is worse than I've ever seen it, and that goes—that that, that means something when you th- consider the. Cooked intelligence before Iraq. Uh, most people, including apparent intelligence analysts in the employ now, think that Ukraine can win. Think that Russia can be defeated in Ukraine. Uh, my God, think that Russia is running out of ammunition. Where are they getting it? They get it stuff from all oh, from Ukrainian liaison services. And they're a great source for all this stuff. Anyhow, I, I you know so that's what happened in two thousand eight. The the coup de, coup, coup de grace happened in 2014 when we know from intercepted conversations that Victoria Noland, who was, under, uh, well, she was Assistant Secretary of State for European Affairs at the time. She was caught talking to our ambassador in uh, in Kiev, um, Jeffrey Pyatt was his name, and uh, they were plotting the coup, they were picking the people who would take take office. Uh, at the end, um, uh, Jeffrey Pyatt summons up the courage to say, "But, uh, but, uh, Secretary Newland, what about the EU? He EU is not going to like this." And she says, "F, you know, the last three letters, F the EU." Now, if there's any dispute about the authenticity of this conversation, Witnessed the fact that three days later she apologized. She said, oh, I'm sorry for my language. She didn't apologize for the coup, which came two weeks later. My God. Okay. The conversation was posted on YouTube on the 4th of February, 2014. McGovern, thank My God. Uh, poor, uh, poor, 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 poor these poor guys are all groomed to take over Ukraine. I mean, it's not gonna happen now. It's blown, term of the trade, when you, it's blown, okay? Now, apparently, Putin uh, thought the same thing because he stayed in Sochi at the Winter Olympics. And he didn't get home until the day after the coup. And the day after the coup, he said, well, I mean, if NATO thinks they're going to take over Ukraine, including Sevastopol in Crimea, where we have our only ice-free all year-round naval base, <laughs> we got to do something about Crimea. And his advisor said, "Okay, well, that's that's clear. We can't let them think they're going to take over Crimea, uh, and the Crimeans certainly don't want that either." So uh, Putin says, "Now, this is my inter- I don't have any." I wasn't a fly on the wall, but this is clearly what happened. In my view, Putin said, well, how how the hell did Crimea get to be part of Ukraine in the first place? Oh, well, uh, Khrushchev, he was pretty much almost Ukrainian. He grew up right on the border there. He wanted to get Ukrainian support when he took over after Stalin died in 1953, 54. And so he took out a piece of paper and he he did a little ukaz. order. He says, oh, from now on, Crimea will be part of the Soviet Union, right? Okay. Well, Putin says, I don't know if that will wash these days. Let's have a plebiscite. I mean, let's find out. I mean, we know the answer. (laughs) And sure enough, the answer was 90% people in Crimea wanted to join Russia. And so it happened. It happened, hmm, well, just, uh, let's see. Here's March. Yeah. Just uh, yeah, uh, let's see, do the math. Uh, the same same month. Now, Putin, uh, a, a month after the annexation of Crimea, Putin said something very significant that was just missed in in all reporting. He said, you know, we had to take over Crimea, uh, we had to annex Crimea. Um, And not only, not only so that it would not be part of NATO with the rest of Ukraine, but even more important, we didn't want offensive strike missile bases on our periphery in Crimea. Even more important now, fast forward to December 21, 2021, and here's Putin before his assembled admirals and his generals and the defense minister, and he says, and I quote: "The Americans have put in missile bases capsules that can accommodate offensive strike missiles like Tomahawks, Tomahawks, or, um, or when they get them, uh, hypersonic missiles. Now, if the Tomahawk." cruise missiles, which go sort of slow, right? I have seven to 10 minutes to decide what to do. Like, should I blow up the rest of the world? I mean, you didn't say that, but, but that's what it comes to, okay? Now, if they're well, hypersonic missiles, um, five minutes, that's not going to happen. And then he makes a mistake. Putin says, this time, this time we need a written agreement. A written-down agreement to preclude this, and he looks out at his admirals and generals. <laughs> Again, this is what I saw on their faces. All oh, right, Vladimir Vladimirovich. Uh, wasn't the wasn't the A B M treaty written down? And, and how about the Intermediate Nuclear Forces? That was written down. Open. Come on, Vladimir Vladimirovich. So what happens? Nine days later, the White House gets a call from the Kremlin. Mr. Putin would like to talk to Mr. Biden, like, right away. The answer? They were flummoxed. They they said, well, wait a second. Our negotiators are going to be meeting in Geneva on the 9th and 10th of January. why, Why is... Putin have to talk to Biden right away, please, I'd like to talk to him right away, okay? So to his credit, Biden takes the call. And what comes out of it? The readout says, Mr. Joseph Biden said that Washington has no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, period, end quote. Whoa these negotiations are off to a great start. Uh, Ushakov, one of, well, Putin's major advisor on these issues, is 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 applauding this thing. New Year's Eve has never been so celebratory in Moscow with these fellows. They? they think, oh, this is great. Guess what happens? Boom. Biden wakes up the next morning, in my interpretation, uh, Jacob Sullivan and, uh, what's his name, Blinken, hey. Joe, I mean, Mr. President, you you didn't didn't say that, did you? (laughs) You didn't promise that. Well, yeah, I thought maybe, forget about it. So they forgot about it. They wouldn't talk about it at Geneva. So this I see as one of the, the last straws, okay? On February 12th, the last time Biden and Putin talked together, the readout of that made it clear that this this undertaking that Washington had no intention of putting offensive strike missiles in in uh, Ukraine was off the table. No one would discuss it. Now February twelfth. So what's that? Twelve days before the invasion. It's not the only reason. Uh, it's it's one of several. One of which is, of course, the Russians realized that. Uh, The Ukrainian troops trained up to trained and equipped up to NATO standards were about to pounce on the Donbass. And even more important, even more important, if I can use that phrase, was the fact that Putin had secured Xi Jinping's nihil opstatt, okay, his imprimatur, his They were together in Beijing to open the Olympics on the 4th of February. Uh, Again, I was not a fly on the wall, but I think subsequent events check this out. Uh, Putin said, you know, the Americans are are dissembling again. They said they'd talk about no offensive strike missiles in Ukraine, and they reneged. They still have those holes in Romania and Poland. uh, it looks like they're going to attack the Donbass. The Nazis are still the pro-Nazis or the proto-Nazis or neo-Nazis, I suppose you call it, what if Nazis, are still having great influence in Kiev. I think I'm going to have to, I think we, we have to invade uh, Ukraine. Now, how did she react? Here's my, here's my, here's my rendition of how she reacted. You mean after the Olympics are over, right? Oh yeah, yeah, after the Olympics are over, okay. Now, this was big, China. I mean, China's fundamental bedrock policy is non-interference in the internal affairs of the government, non-violent sovereignty, no violation of borders and stuff, and yet in the event Xi, in effect, gave Putin uh, a waiver on Westphalia. okay, yeah. I understand these are core interests of yours. Uh, You're gonna support our core interests in in the East against uh, in in Taiwan. So yeah, we're in this together. As a matter of fact, uh, the Americans openly say that I'm next right after you. (laughs) So yeah, we're in this together. Now, the US policymakers haven't gotten that. They haven't gotten the fact that Russia and China Are joined at the hip now, what used to be a, let me see if I can do this, a a triangular relationship with Russia, China, and the U.S. about equilateral, okay? Now it's, it's isosceles with, with the U.S. on the short end of the stick, okay? Um, The fact that U.S. policymakers don't realize that they've driven these two other giants together and think that they can take them both on at the same time. Uh, this is going to be underscored uh, as Xi in Beige, is in Moscow today. Uh, they will they will underscore again their strategic relationship, which they say is uh, well exceeds is the word exceeds a normal treaty relationship has no upper end. Uh, that's that's uh, tectonic. <laughs> Okay. In other words, in, in sum, some, the Ukraine war has created. You could say multipolar world, but I say bipolar. N- not only <laughs> in the psychiatric sense, okay, but in the strategic sense, okay. You had the Lily White West, and then you have the rest of the world. People of color, 80%. Russians, yeah, and the rest of the world. Now, that doesn't mean that the U.S. has isolated Russia, does it? It's just the opposite. And what frightens me is that uh, this is, on the part of U.S. policymakers, crazy. And I have to say that I find confirmation (laughs) of that In the words of Vladimir Vladimir Putin, who said exactly that, he gave a big speech at Valdai, 27 October, okay? In the Q&A, which lasted three and a half hours, he was asked, uh, what do you make of the fact that the U.S. is taking on China at the, same, at the same time, it's just sending billions of dollars worth of arms and taking us on in Ukraine. And Putin said, I have this committed to memory. He says, it doesn't make any sense. There's no logic to it. I think they're crazy. You know, earlier, I thought there might be some subtle plan here, but I no longer think so. I think it's just sheer arrogance and a feeling of impunity." End quote. Now, sheer arrogance, a feeling of impunity, crazy, my God, doesn't matter what I think. What Putin thinks matters, okay? He knows, for example, that, well, When people ask me about these little capsules in Romania and Poland already there, ready to shoot ostensibly ABM missiles, well, they're in the wrong place for ABM missiles, (laughs) and they were justified originally to protect against Iran, right? (laughs) Iran is still not working on a nuclear weapon. And we have the head of intelligence reinforcing that judgment first made in 2007 and still consistent. OK, so it was a subterfuge and, and Putin has said that. So what are these capsules doing? I said to one of my military advisors, Ted Postal. I said, Ted, wouldn't they? I mean, how could they get how could they get uh, cruise missiles or how could they get tomahawks or? hypersonic missiles into those holes without being observed. And he looks at me and says, Ray, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a physicist. Maybe you don't notice, but it gets dark at night, even in, in Romania and in, in Poland and in Ukraine, and they could do it overnight. I said, oh, come on. They'd be a great big uh, hook and ladder sort of thing. He said, no, right? They don't need that. All they need is an electric line repair truck. That's all it takes. You know, these trucks that repair your electric lines when they go down in a storm. That's all it takes? Yeah, all they have to do is put one of those up there, put the missiles in the thing. At night, it takes a couple hours. And then they put a little disk or change the program. And you've got offensive strike missiles with seven to 10 or later five minutes warning time. Now, people don't realize, I, I, I thought that it was so important to realize this, to say that this is provocation enough that I mentioned it during that UN speech that I gave. I said, you know, unprovoked is just not true. It's got to be realized that this is provoked because you're never gonna end it if you don't stop provoking. And I even mis—I misspoke. I said, you know, they're right around the periphery of the United States. Well, I meant, of course, all around the periphery of Russia. That's where Poland and <laughs> Romania are. But I was thinking ahead because the analogy I draw is exactly when Russia tried to put these things on the periphery of the United States. 1962, I was on active duty at the time, I almost got sent with the rest of my infantry buddies down to Key West to prepare to invade Cuba, okay? Now, that was a provoked action. So what did Kennedy do? He did all manner of illegal things. Blockade, he called it a quarantine, but it was a blockade. He said, no more ships come near Cuba. Act of war, prepared an invasion force. Not supposed to do that either. Uh, Threaten nuclear war. <laughs> UN says you're supposed to do that either. Did anybody say now, come on, John Kennedy, you're overreacting. For God's sake, yeah, this this is this is unprovoked what you're doing. No, they didn't say that because it was provoked. Now to th- to say that, you know, the the, the first catchwords were, the invasion was illegal and unprovoked. Now, I think I've dealt with the unprovoked, the illegal. I'm not a lawyer, but there's a part of the UN Charter, Article 51, self-defense, that some lawyers say uh, can be applied just as easy as other parts of the UN Charter to justify this kind of thing. It's been used before by other countries. So I'm not a lawyer. I'm not going to contend with this uh, illegal stuff. But what I will say is that it's it's not an open and shut case. People need to consult constitutional lawyers and uh, but unprovoked let's face it it was provoked and therein lies the tale Uh, that's why in my view Russian forces are going to go uh, farther west uh, in Ukraine but no farther than they have to. Um, Lavrov said three months ago and Putin said just two weeks ago look we wanted to take care of our people, our Russian-speaking people in Donbas. Now, we realize that we had to go further west. It's a matter of geography. You get big, long-range missiles that can shoot 150 miles, we have to go 150 miles farther west. So, my concern is that uh, it'll be such a shock to the administration, who is being fed this line that Ukraine can win, and to, uh, to the people who are fed this line in the media, that when push comes to shove, about a month from now, I would guess, um, US policymakers are going to have to make real crucial decisions as we enter a, a, an election campaign year. What's Biden going to do? Well, he'll wake up and then Jacob Sullivan and Tony Blinken will tell him what to do. That scares me to hell. I imagine it scares Vladimir Putin as well.
0: Let me make some counter arguments uh, to this that I usually voice in the mainstream media. And if you could address them briefly one by one. Um, So the first counter argument that is usually made is Ukraine is an independent state and has a right to cut military deals with anybody it uh, pleases. Um, and so becoming part of NATO, if it wishes to, as a sovereign state, is within its own right. How do you counter this argument, Ray, briefly?
1: Well, that's a very legalistic argument that uh, prescinds from any consideration of uh, power politics 101, balance of power 101. Uh, why is Ukraine wanting to be part of NATO? Are they fearing that the Russians were going to invade and take them over and invade the, the Baltics and Poland as well? If they are, they're crazy. They're reading the New York Times. There is not one iota of in, indication that that's the case. So, um, this business about uh, Ukraine having the right to do this, uh, when you live next to a giant superpower, as Cuba and the Soviet Union learned in 1962, uh, you don't have the option of threatening their, their security. And so that's the realism school of interpretation. I happen to belong to that. And I am together with John Mearsheimer, who is much more educated and respected than I, to say that this just happens to be the, the world. Is it is it moral? I don't know if it's moral or not. It's, it's factual. It's the lay of the land. Uh, it's maybe unfortunate for people, but you don't have court blanche to make these kinds of decisions if they're interpreted as threatening your bigger neighbor.
0: So the second counter argument that is usually made is that NATO is also stationed in Poland, Latvia, Lithuania. Uh, they share borders with uh, Russia. Um, And it wasn't like NATO was going to invade Russia and so-called imminent threat that Russia's state was about to collapse. So how do you counter that argument with the fact that NATO was already present on Russian borders?
1: Well, uh, Poland, I'm sure you've been to Poland, you've been to the Baltic states. Um, I mean... So have I. (laughs) Why would Russia want to take over Poland and the Baltic States? I mean, no, no insult meant, but is there any, is there a scintilla of evidence that Russia wants to do that? Do people not realize that the Soviet Union fell apart, that they no longer try to take over the world, much less Europe? Ukraine is a special case. Ukraine lies on a very large border with Russia. Russians are being killed in Ukraine, 14,000 since 2014, when we overthrew that government, and 4,000 in Donbass since, 18,000 people. That's a lot of people, okay? Um, so, uh, so uh, just to sum up here, um, there was not... A scintilla of evidence that Putin, it ever entered into Putin's head to take over Crimea until the coup in 2014. So you get a, a you know, which came first here, um, you know, what caused what. So I think it's, uh, you yeah, know, I can understand that the Poles, given their history, and the the Baltic states, given their history. They might remember all this stuff. So, oh, my God, that we have, we live in Russia's shadow. Uh, but I think, in my view, that uh, unless there was some evidence that Russia wants to invade or attack or take over <laughs> these countries, that they're being very foolish in spending so much of their, their hard-earned currency on armaments and depending on the United States to defend them, when I dare say uh, it's a open question as to whether the US would risk bombing, the bombing of Washington uh, def- for defending Warsaw. I kind of doubt it. I uh, don't know if the polls really believe that, but there's a lot of money to be made in these armaments and so forth. And, uh, and the people in power in these countries are a bunch of uh, functionaries that have very, very little uh, strategic depth. Uh, The likes of Willy Brandt and Egon Bahr in in Germany. Well, where are they? Uh, I don't see anybody with that kind of format or guten Ruf.
0: And the last argument that is made, especially when it comes to NATO expansion, uh, this famous quote that we are not going to move one inch to the east, uh, that promises that were made, is usually countered in the mainstream media by stating that these things were only verbal and there were no legally binding documents um that were somehow attached to international law so hence uh russia cannot use them um as a way to say uh see the West broke its promises because there's nothing legally binding uh this how do you counter that well it's not about a
1: countering thing it's just trying to explain what the facts are (laughs) I, I explained how uh, uh, Jimmy Baker uh, raised the thing, and then, uh, unlike any reasonable lawyer, uh, forgot—let's say—forgot to get it written down. <laughs> give, me, give me a break. And it's the promise is extant in all kinds of foreign ministry documents in Bonn, in Berlin, in Washington, and in, in Paris. I mean, the promise was made. Now. Fact that it was written down. Uh, well, uh, when you make a promise, you have a certain moral obligation, particularly when the stakes are so high. Particularly when the other part of the promise was a reunited Germany. For God's sake, <laughs> you know. I imagine, uh, I imagine the people of Geraschov's age now are wondering, well, this was a really good idea at all. You know, I mean, <laughs> not only did they move more than one inch, but uh, a reunited Germany has turned out to be a pretty, a pretty scary thing these days. And I say that advisedly, having, having worked and, and served for five years in Germany, uh, I too, am a little afraid of what's going on there. Uh, one of my friends, uh, Heine, uh, Heine Blicke is uh is faced with a prison sentence for sing, simply saying, hey, uh, why don't we try to put ourselves in Putin's shoes and why don't we acknowledge that there are Nazis in Kiev? My God, both of those things are, the last thing is true, the first thing is a good idea. He was, fu- he, he was convicted of that by a German judge? My God, that reminds me of 90 years ago. 90 years ago, 1933, when the Germans sort of, well, one young German lawyer, Sebastian Hafner, uh, you know, anyhow, Sebastian, Raymond Pretzel was his real name. He recorded that uh, when when guts and courage were needed in Berlin after the Reichstagsbranth, uh, that the Germans bent toward submissive, submissiveness, okay, Uh, that uh, they didn't speak out, they couldn't find their voice, that Social Democrats and the Centrum Catholic Party caved. Now, I I would hope that there are enough people that know that history. And there are enough people that know the history of the German people since 1945, when German people had to act like children before the Allies, the US first and foremost, and then adolescents, okay, giving a little trouble here or there. Uh, But now they have to act like adults, for God's sake, because their own economy, their own freedoms are at risk, and the people in power are uh, people that don't seem to have, that have keine (laughs) Ahnung. But what's at stake for God's sake, you know? So I get a little get a little upset at what I watch going on in Germany, but this is the key. If the Germans can ask Olaf Scholz when you stood next to President Biden on the seventh of February last year, and he said, Yes, I promise you, the Nord Stream pipeline will not go through um, oh, you said we do everything together. There's nothing important that we do that we don't do together. So did he tell you about the plan to blow up the pipeline? Did you do that together? Or were you, you e were you were you really surprised back in, in September what happened? Either way, uh Councillor Schultz. Either way, it's extreme embarrassment, is it not? So how do you explain all this? Now, I asked a German friend, why don't they ask him that? And he said, well, people submissive. People are afraid to be in, oh, I've been accused of being in Putin's pocket, right? A Putin verstehe. <laughs> so to verstehen Putin is somehow unpatriotic. I mean, I thought we were, supposed to people. We we're supposed to understand people so that we can deal with them. Anyhow, the situation getting out of hand. I think we'll come to a head in just a month when Biden will have to decide, does he want to enlist German help in upping the ante once again to include a greater risk of nuclear weapons use in Ukraine? Or when it comes to Berlin, hat in hand, will Scholz uh, and maybe Bayerbock will be gone by then. Gut uh, sei Dank. Will, will Scholz say, "Oh, okay, sure, if you say so, uh, we're in there. We got, we'll do whatever you want." I don't know. I just, I just. Well, I've been saying this for many years. I just hope uh, the German people can be informed well enough so that they can. For once in 90 years, act like adults, stand up for their own rights, stand up for their own freedoms, stand up for their own economy, for
0: God's sake. Ray McGovern, former CIA officer, thank you so much for your time today. You're most welcome. And thank you for tuning in today. Be sure to subscribe to our channel if you want to watch part two with Ray McGovern, which will focus on the latest developments surrounding the war in Ukraine. And also join our other channels on Rumble and Telegram as a precaution in case YouTube shadow bans us. And lastly, if you're watching this video, please don't forget to donate. There's an entire team working behind the scenes from camera, audio, light and in the case of our German videos, translation, voice over, video editing, correction. So if you want us to continue providing you with independent and non-profit news and analysis, be sure to donate. I'm your host Zain Raza, see you guys next time.